live your life, boy. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Conspiracy Farm, where we don't start the conspiracies, we just add the water. And now, your host of the most state-of-the-art, most informed podcast on the interweb, I present to you, Pat Militage and Jeffrey Wilson. Ladies and gentlemen, are you ready for Yeah, rear naked choke of Cocker Spaniel, bro. You know what I'm saying? Change the neighborhood up. Conspiracy Farm. Go. Check it out. All right, here we go. We're going to get this one revved up. And as always, joining me, my co-host, Jeffrey Wilson, down there in St. Louis. Jeffrey. How we doing? I'm great, man. Just uh, hunkered down, anxious to talk to the mayor today. Yeah, and as you mentioned, uh, we're going to be talking to America. We'll call him America's mayor. It's no longer Giuliani. It's our mayor here in Bettendorf, Iowa, Robert Gallagher. I'll just tell you guys a little bit about him. Uh, I've known him for quite a few years. He was raised in Bettendorf, graduated from Bettendorf High School in 1987, received his B.A. in Communication Studies and Psychology from the University of Iowa in 91, received his Juris Doctorate degree from Marquette Law School in 94 and in 1996, returned back to Bettendorf to practice law with Gallagher, Millage, and Gallagher, and also to raise his family. Uh, Bob has served the city of Bettendorf and the Quad City community for over 20 years, 2004. Bob was named Volunteer of the Year for the Bettendorf Chamber of Commerce in 2008. He received the Sheldon Strick Leadership Award for extraordinary leadership and distinguished service to the Quad Cities. That same year, he was named a Quad Cities area leader under 40. In 2013, Bob was in the Bettendorf High School Hall of Honor. He is currently serving as co-chair for the Mississippi River Cities and Towns Initiative, vice chair of the Bi-State Regional Commission, and serves on the board of directors for the Scott Emergency Communication Center. He has also been the mayor of Bettendorf, Iowa since 2012. And we want to welcome you. Uh, Mayor Bob Gallagher to the show. Happy to be here, Pat. Thanks so much for that lengthy introduction. It makes me sound like I've done something in my life. I was going to say, geez, Bob, <laughs> get your life together, man. Do something but with I, yourself. I appreciate the kind words. Uh, I probably pulled that right off the city website, so it's all good. <laughs> so I wanted to just stick to the nuts and bolts of things, but in my phone conversation with you, you were nice enough to give me a call after I sent you a message, and you started explaining a lot of the continuity of government that's been going on, and of course that starts at the federal level, down to the state level, and down into the, the uh, counties and the, and the municipalities, which of course everybody hopefully uh, is doing their job and, and following continuity of government rules and regulations. And, and also, you know, we're going to get into how they can differentiate depending on your personal perspective and the city council's perspective on how serious the situation is, how you're going to adapt compared to, say, Davenport, right? Yeah. Um, starting at the federal level, we have a conference call with the White House every Wednesday. During that call, some 3,000 participants from tribal leaders, county leadership, and uh, city mayors are briefed on all kinds of different things. Each week, the call is a little bit different. Earlier calls, of course, really focused on the COVID-19 response in terms of the disease or the virus itself, how things were happening, what were the um, ideas that the White House in conjunction with the medical team, Dr. Fauci, et cetera, were thinking about local or recent calls rather have focused more on uh, the economic response and the CARES package that came out last week um, so each department, for instance, the SBA was on, the Department of Labor, the Department of the Treasury, all kinds of different information over about an hour and a half call each week so that we can be up to date on what the federal government is doing. 
from the state perspective, you're aware that both mayors, Iowa and Illinois, excuse me, governors in Iowa and Illinois are uh, providing a daily press conference. Additionally, I'm on the phone maybe a couple of times a week with Governor Reynolds, chief of staff and the folks that she has put in charge of their response to COVID-19, both the virus itself and the economic packages that may uh, become available to help us out of this pandemic. Locally though, that's really where the rubber meets the road. Local officials are the boots on the ground, if you will, the policymakers with the folks who are doing all of the work in the trenches. And local Quad Cityans can be very proud of the response from our governments. We have worked together consistently through the National Emergency Management Agency system, which is a system that sets up emergency management agencies throughout the United States in a paramilitary type organization so that we can respond to disasters, whether they be man-made, whether they be um, from, you know, like a large accident on I-80 or something like that, or a flood, something that Mother Nature throws our way, or a pandemic like this virus. And both sides of the river have these emergency management agencies. And in the Quad Cities, we are working not only across state lines, but across the river, our counties and our cities all together so that those continuity of government under the emergency management agency are all on the same page. We started the first two weeks with daily conference calls. We have moved to every other day, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So let me tell you kind of how this is organized and how it came to be. These two emergency management agencies, Scott County and Rock Island County, got together to say, hey, this is our area, this is our region, we need to work together to fight this pandemic. They have county uh, health departments, and of course we have multiple hospital systems, they have emergency management people, and a mass care sheltering and donations organization through the Red Cross. So each day we would meet on these conference calls to share information. The first call would take place at 8.30 in the morning between the emergency management agency on both sides of the river who have started, or at, you know, weeks ago when this pandemic was announced, they created emergency operation command centers. So this has been done virtually because of the pandemic, but in a flood situation, you might have 20 people in the same room trying to do whatever is needed to fight that issue. In the flood of last year, the highest flood in the history of the Quad Cities. We were all in the same room. A couple people were working on procurement of equipment. For instance, maybe somebody was working with the state and municipalities in the center of the state to get dump trucks um, or other needed equipment. Somebody else might be working with the private farmers who might have pumps that we could use that they use to move manure, and we needed those to move water. That gives you an idea of this emergency operation command center. So at 8.30 in the morning, those folks from the command center would meet virtually because of the pandemic with our health departments on both sides of the river and our hospitals to figure out the medical response. They would then meet at 10 o'clock with something called the COVID-19 coalition that included the chamber, large businesses, Visit Quad Cities, some of our larger nonprofits, Think United Way and Salvation Army, to learn from the Emergency Operation Command Center, 
what is needed on the medical front. And then at 11 o'clock, all of those folks would then report to the policymakers, the county board chairs and the mayors of all the towns. Think every single town from Maysville to LeClaire, Port Byron, Bettendorf, Davenport, and the big five, we call it, you know, East Moline, Moline, Rock Island, uh, Davenport, and Bettendorf. So everybody is together. Now, that happened for about two weeks. Now we've gone to Monday, Wednesday, Friday calls with everybody, and we'll continue that until or unless we need more communication. The reason that we've been able to drop off a little is there haven't been much changes. We've closed a few little things here and there, but the stay-at-home orders from both governors were in place, and we're not making a lot of changes. It's important that the schools, blood center, all the uh, PIOs, the information technology people, and the folks that share with the media come together for that call so that we can message and send to the media what we're asking and what the changes are that we're making in each of our municipalities. We found it further important to work together so that all the municipalities worked together so that if we closed City Hall in Bettendorf, Davenport knew it and they knew the reasons so that we could work together to close them both. If Davenport closed the library and we're open, everybody's gonna come to our library. Is that what we want? And as soon as gatherings dropped from 250 to 50 and then to 10, we were making all those decisions together as a region. Even when Illinois put the shelter in place order that was a little bit different than Governor Reynolds' order in Iowa, we worked together to do everything we could to make sure that the Quad City region, at least from the policy government standpoint, was working together. We were all informed. This is a really important thing for the citizens in our area to know that we're on the phone together all the time, to know that we're working together all the time, and we understand and are going through the same things with this kind of a pandemic. It's way different than a car accident involving three or four cars in downtown Rock Island. This affects us all, and we're all working together. It's really been a fantastic cooperative effort. I'm so proud of the elected officials, the emergency management folks, all the people in the health department, our hospital systems, schools, everybody has stepped up to this plate and, and really are doing a great job. Awesome. Jeff, I had... No, I mean, that's she's, I mean, that's very cool, obviously, that you guys can see beyond politics because obviously this kind of stuff does transcend right, left, et cetera. So kudos to the Quad Cities. Um, I mean, I don't know how far down the rabbit hole you can go here on the old conspiracy farm, but I, I, we asked all of our guests, you know, researchers, authors, et cetera, as much as you can kind of say personally, do you, do you feel, I mean, obviously you're following kind of federal mandates that kind of trickles down to the state municipalities. Do you feel that, the 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 reaction the threat is necessitating the reaction if you understand Jeffrey, what I'm let me get to that just let, just because i know you're in st louis i was just on the phone today with the mississippi river cities and towns initiative giving a press conference that included the folks in st louis i'm a co-chair of that entity 95 mayors up and down the river we're all working on the same things we're headquartered in st louis Colin Wellenkamp is our executive director. I don't know if you know Colin, but it's obviously a big city. But the mayor of East St. Louis presented today to the national media what you all are facing in St. Louis, this dual threat of the coronavirus and still being on the river, so looking at the flooding issues. Um, so to directly answer your question, I draw that information not only from our local people, that MRCTI I told you about, the federal government, and, and it's, it, it's tough not to come to a realization at some point that the cure 
in terms of what we're doing to stay home and stay out of businesses may be worse than the disease. The economic factor could end up being much worse than the fact that there is a sickness, a, a virus that is traveling. Obviously, I don't want anybody to be sick. I certainly don't want anybody to die. But if you were to compare numbers on other pandemics, the SARS, right. you know, bird flu, all the way back to 1918, and we've seen all these uh, comparisons, you start to wonder, is there a component here that is not necessarily medical uh, or emergency management in nature? Um, we work really well here in the Quad Cities because we have mayors from both sides of the aisle. Some were demanding that Governor Reynolds immediately put shelter in place when Illinois did so. We were able to talk as a community, and then those of us who are in the same political party as the governor who can uh, probably deliver a message a little softer, uh, made those phone calls to have discussions and bring back the information from our state health departments to explain why and where why she wasn't going to shelter in place and where she was. And we were basically at shelter in place anyway. So I think that learning from each other across the aisle, like we get to do in that Mississippi River, River Cities and Towns initiative, and removing the divisive rhetoric of the political party um, discourse, we, we are able to agree on so much, whether it's fixing the river or how much is too much in the response to this pandemic. Um, I don't know personally where I stand, except I certainly don't want people to continue to be sick, and I certainly don't want uh, people to die as a result of this. Uh, and I am somebody who is empirical data-based. I rely on what it is there that I can prove. My, my job as a lawyer starts right there, and then you can fashion and craft arguments from those provable facts. Right. Sometimes, as I've learned in this job, um, we can all agree on what the baseline facts are. It's what I call extrapolative science that gets in the way. You can make an argument that it's gonna be way the heck to the left or way the heck to the right when you look at the numbers and the snapshot of the numbers today. <clears throat> Furthermore, you have to trust the numbers. So you don't know that Russia is virtually COVID free because right. I'm not so sure right. that's a right, trustworthy right. country. Um, well, and, and to that, to that point, not, I mean, even, even the coronavirus, uh, Laura Burke, I think, anyway, one of the coronavirus task force are saying literally, yeah, Dr. Burke, Dr. Burke, I mean, even anybody who has underlying conditions of asthma, you know, respiratory, whatever, heart failure, you know, coronary heart disease, whatever, if they're test positive for COVID, then that is a death attributed. It's a, it's another COVID death. Right. And, I, and for me, I don't I, I guess I kind of get that. But I think that that winds up helping to inflate the numbers to kind of drag this out more um, than I think necessarily it would be. I mean, I don't know what, what your thoughts on that, on the numbers kind of being inflated or even I mean, uh, Mayor, there's even I mean, as a lot of this fake news, we're just seeing fake pictures from Italy where there's a hangar with all these coffins saying it's covid related. But actually, it was an article from 2013 of an African uh, migrants trying to get to Italy and they wound up drowning of like there was 500 people on the ship. And they're just a lot of these news reports of, I mean, I'm sorry again, New York Channel 4 ran a, ran a quick clip of a, the, the hospital in chaos and it was actually 
a company He's called it, well no it was a company called rush that does medical simulations and they're working on a mannequin for a split second but they're playing it off as a new york hospital so there's just a lot of kind of fake news misinformation which really stinks because i mean we're all trying to figure out what's going on here and um yeah just what are your thoughts on that well i think um it is really important for us all to continue to ask where is the truth how can i find it and remember what reputable sources might be there. You bring up a couple of great examples of what we used to believe were reputable sources of information. Yes. Before the proliferation of cable TV, we had three stations. <laughs> and if you look at Charlie Wilson's War, for instance, that's a movie uh, based on some truth, you, you start to scratch your head and ask yourself those questions. We have now seen concrete examples of what we might have thought were trusted news sources, either making a mistake, because we all make them, or purposefully choosing to send messages that are either inflated or, in this case, inflated, to attempt to further an agenda. That's really scary. That's really difficult because we, as policymakers, have to rely on good news sources and good information. I can't go to New York and take those pictures myself. They're not even going to let me in based upon right. the state-at-home orders, but right, right. you see what I'm so, saying. Yes. And as you roll that back to the COVID deaths, the beginning of your thought, um, and the fact that we are attributing all deaths in which a person has been tested positive for corona to the coronavirus, at least we know that as a fact, and people are admitting that think how much worse it would be if that wasn't admitted. I hold out hope that there's a possibility that those deaths may be able to be researched or uh, reevaluated so that a doctor could make a decision or a distinction between the heart attack victim who then contracts coronavirus but is now listed as dying from coronavirus, something like that. I think that My hope is that during this time of uncertainty and fear um, and lack of time, hopefully, because I think doctors are moving pretty fast in some instances, although we have prepared here in the Quad Cities and down the Mississippi have prepared for these surges that have not yet come, and let's hope that they never do. Right. Um, But so so that feeds into the argument that, you know, hey, maybe they just don't have time right now, and right now this is what we're going to do. We have to make a decision as a policymaker making that particular decision. It could be wrong, but we need to make a decision and we need to move with it so that everybody's on the same page. Yeah. I do believe that there's some of that because sometimes we can get paralysis by analysis. We can yeah. sit here and look at all these numbers and look at all this, this information and never get to a decision. I'm a gatherer of information, trusted information, and then make the decision. Live with the decision because nobody is perfect. If you have to apologize, you can apologize and say, looking back, hindsight's twenty twenty. That maybe wasn't the best decision. It was made under sure. these circumstances, this evidence at the time. But right. there is no doubt that your questions are valid and raise the ire of those of us who hopefully are intelligent enough to think, where's the good information, where's the trusted information, and who is the trusted news source? That has all been blurred in our country. Yes. You cannot sure. find it on a on a consistent basis in any one source, and that's scary. Well, and there's several components to this. You brought up the economic impact, which which we haven't really seen yet. 
and as Pat and I have talked to or talked mentioned many times on the on the show here, look at what people are doing and their bellies are still full. We're in week two and three, money's starting to run out. I went to the store yesterday, the shelves are pretty looking empty. I mean, they're, they're, it's looking bad. And then the possible supply lines, there's potential threat of that. Speaking to the social implications and, you know, the Quad Cities and all of you guys working together, the Quad Cities is what, 600,000 plus, 500,000 plus. It's not a small yeah, area. Yeah, about 450 probably. It, it's not a small area. What are your thoughts as a mayor of, of somewhere like uh, Bettendorf of these certain police forces that are releasing certain amount of criminals and then also saying they're not going to respond to certain calls? And that the larger kind of social impact as this spreads and people become more desperate, they pretty much just made public to the fact, well, we're not responding to break-ins. We might do it over the phone, they said, or take reports over the phone. Well, it's like, well, the guy who was breaking in is dead now because I shot him because you guys guys didn't want to come when he was breaking in. I know they're going to be busy and stuff, but the larger social implications of all that, what are your thoughts? Well, to fly at about thirty to 60,000 feet, I, I, as, a, as a mayor who's tough on crime, that is a concern. I don't like to see people released into the community who are violent offenders or could pause uh, a danger to other people, right? Um, so you have to balance that against the spread of COVID in a confined space like a jail and how quickly it could go. And those are the tough decisions that county uh, sheriffs and county board chairs are making. We are lucky in the Quad Cities. We have not seen an increase in crime as a result of those offenders being released to the community, nor have we seen an increase in crime as a result of the suggestions consistent with your thoughts that certain things, little things, are just not going to be policed at the same level right now. Uh, We have not seen an increase in domestic violence at the home. That was the big concern. You add um, a, a... battered person to a situation where there is no escape. You have to stay at home. Uh, Tensions rise. It's much more difficult. We haven't seen that either. That's not to say that we won't. So we are consistently discussing that with our police chiefs with each other at the policymaking stage and attempting to find creative solutions. It is very difficult. It is very scary. I have friends and neighbors who are going to go out and get guns if they haven't already because they want to protect themselves and their family. And of course, the concern there is that if they're not well trained on a gun or the laws that relate thereto, what kind of implications do, do, do those type of actions pose? And I, you know, the first thing I would do is call Pat and say, come to my house or I'll meet you at the range. You help me through this because I know that you have uh, great knowledge and expertise in the area. But I'm not sure everybody's doing that as you see a run on guns and on ammunition for those reasons that people really fear that the sworn officers, be they county or state or city police, um, are not coming to help. And I think at least in our area, we've seen that that is not true. They are coming to help and we need not panic. We must say vigilant, obviously, lock your cars, lock your homes, all of the things that we teach people to do on a regular basis. Uh, The Bettendorf that Pat and I grew up in, where we never locked our house and we walked right into our neighbor's house, especially if they are having steak for dinner, because we wanted steak instead of mom's goulash. That doesn't exist. You know, we were able to do that and we were welcomed as a member of the family in a hundred houses in this town, especially the five around your own. And That's even true. though Pat was four years my senior and wasn't, um, we weren't great friends, I always looked up to him. I know that if I knocked on his door, they'd feed me. 
and call my mom and with the telephone on the wall and the long cord and say, Mrs. Gallagher, your kid's here. That's how that worked. Awesome. That's gone. We got to lock our cars. We got to lock our houses. So be vigilant. Know that the police are coming to help you in our local community. But we have seen evidence of what you are talking about throughout our country. And that is really scary. What's more scary is, in my opinion, that that has been made a political hot button issue between the left and the right. If we can't come together in a pandemic right. where everybody, green, red, black, white, Illinois, Iowa, old, young, gay, straight, are all affected, when can we come together? Right, right. Yeah, and that's and I want to get back to the economic impact. You know, obviously, you know, these huge bailouts, uh, we know that that can mean hyperinflation most likely will um, cause some hyperinflation. I mean, I've even noticed the cost of chicken already doubled. The cost of eggs already doubled. Things are going up. Obviously, the demand for those uh, is there, including canned goods and many other things. But the economic impact, I want to ask you this question. If Mayor Bob Gallagher said, my city is economically imploding, because we have to, we have to take into account that a lot of Americans, a big percentage of Americans live check to check. And right now, their money has run out. They're pantries are probably getting pretty pretty thin their refrigerators pretty thin we have to take in consideration uh people's sanity uh you know uh, calls to suicide hotlines are up over two thousand percent suicides are exploding right now because there's i'm sure a lot of people out there that are trying to provide for their kids the pressure they're not they're not making any money and they're and they're starting to panic so at what point and do you have the power if you were to say you know what um City's open back up. The city's open back up. Um, my city's going to die otherwise. Because right now, how many people, if they're living check to check, could even go to a restaurant or somewhere else to even take the family out because they've got claustrophobia from being in the house so much um, to even restart things at this point, let alone another two two weeks or another month down the road, Bob. Yeah, Pat, it's uh, it's a worry on all of our minds. And again, if we can deal directly with good information and if we knew a little bit more about how long we might be shut down we might be able to find common ground between left and right specifically in Iowa I do not have the power to open the city I must follow the government or excuse me the governor's okay. orders and proclamations we've had a kind of a short uh, note from the attorney general to that effect typically the lawyer in me says the attorney general writes opinions this was not really an opinion, so right. rather than parse hairs, I think the best response is, as a mayor, I don't have that authority. If you look at the stimulus package, it is an aggressive package, in my opinion, and I think that if we have businesses who were well-equipped before the pandemic, their amount through, say, the PPE program in the CARES Act will get them through the time frames you suggest, the two and a half to maybe four weeks. At a city level, we have some cities who also were living, quote, paycheck to paycheck in that they right. didn't have sufficient reserves to withstand something like this. The city of Bettendorf, through the wisdom of our council, uh, city council, uh, believes that we ought to have reserves on hand between 20 and 25 percent of that which we spend in a year we were about 28 percent or so 
across the board at the beginning of the pandemic. We can go 90 days with no income at the city of Bettendorf and be just as healthy as the day we started, but for we used our reserves. Obviously, we don't necessarily want to do that. Sure. We meet weekly to discuss how we're going to do that and how much we can spend down and what changes we need to make at the city. But the city of Bettendorf is very healthy. And it always, well, not always, it has been for quite a while, uh, some 20 years or so. So we are in a spot where the city is healthy. And I think those businesses that had some reserves, like our law firm or others, who have 90 days because that felt like the right number, are going to be just fine. But you're right. We're going to see a lot of small businesses close. We're going to see a lot of bars and restaurants close. Those are people that are going to either going to be on unemployment or coming out of this if there is a recovery phase, a program. For instance, um, a big campaign to buy American, a big campaign in advanced manufacturing, a big campaign in building our infrastructure. Those folks may have the ability to very quickly filter back into the workforce. And that's certainly what I'm hoping for. I'm praying that the president continues to deliver in a way that I believe that he has throughout this pandemic, but it's unknown how difficult this is gonna be, most importantly because we don't know how long we're gonna be at home because of the virus. If it ended tomorrow, we might be back and running in a month, not to full speed, but back to comfort level where people are working yes. and those businesses that were so severely impacted, do come back. I think we're moving past that point now. Well, and again, some of the uh, getting to the right information, obviously doing this show that's millions of listeners all over the world, we get hit with just a lot of information that we have to sift through. So discernment is really big. And so we all know, and again, however much you can say, I don't want to violate any protocol necessarily, but there's just rumors of what they're calling medical martial law. Obviously, we know the National Guard's being uh, put in place to, to possibly fil uh, facilitate uh, supplies, distributing supplies. I was sent something from a wife uh, whose husband is a Marine, said basically he's going off. He said it's going to be like Iraq, 14 to 16 hour shifts. Marines don't necessarily do the supply stuff. So when you think about Marines, you think about another level of martial law or whatever what are your thoughts or what can you say or what do you kind of prognosticate with the military on the ground if it goes beyond the national guard and again that social implication of hungry people roaming the streets and you know bettendorf like you said has changed a lot and uh even on a good day in davenport and the quad cities it's getting pretty bad as far as crime so looking at these kind of implications what do you see and with the military possibly being involved do you see it getting to any kind of you know, really bad scenario. And are you hearing of there's a military on the ground other than the National Guard? And more so, so, and more so Bob, sorry, to, sorry to interrupt. I would say this uh, more so um, what would facilitate uh, the UN going in or not the UN, the, uh, you know, the National Guard or actual military going into more of a policing role? You know, at what right. point is that is that is that call going to be made um, for you as a mayor? So I think that the, uh, the more pressing concern is the need for the National Guard to help us in the medical response by setting up tents or helping man uh, areas to keep people apart, those kinds of things. So I think that that is starting to be a real concern in some of the hotspots like New York City. And you can see some of that on the national news. Again, can you believe what you see? Because they're showing pictures that claim it's New York and it's not even in our country. Right. So. That's a difficult thing, but I have heard nothing about 
using the National Guard or a Marine Corps or any other military type outfit to come help police. Now, certainly if we were to completely lose control of the streets of our cities, which are pretty well in control because nobody's going out or very few right. people uh, right now. But there I assume, I, this is me guessing, I think there is a breaking point for people. I don't know when that is. But if that happens at the same time, and we see a rally around, let's get out of the house, and everybody says, we're not following this anymore, then you may not be adequately staffed in local and state police departments and might need extra help from, say, the National Guard. Um, it's interesting. My city administrator always tells me, you know, people don't want government in their lives until they want government in their lives, <laughs> and then they want so much government that you can't pay for it. Right. And to that end, we are not set up as a Bettendorf Police Department or any of my other colleagues in the Quad City region to handle that type of a surge. Even with all officers working round the clock, if it got too crazy, there would be a need for help. These folks are gonna have to go home and sleep. They're gonna, they can work 12 hour shifts, but maybe not anymore. And any more than that. Um, right. it, it just seems to me that I don't foresee that. I know yeah. that there's some doomsday naysayers that, that are predicting that. And I just, we haven't seen that in the, my colleagues from the Mississippi River Cities and Towns Initiative up and down the Mississippi haven't seen that. You know, they've got some tough times in places like New Orleans and even in St. Louis, yeah. Baton Rouge. And those are bigger cities where there has been some upheaval. And I think in listening to my mayor colleagues, we can think it's pretty safe to say that the COVID virus, kind of like natural disasters, more disproportionately affects those in a lesser socioeconomic category, maybe those people of color or minorities. Um, and those are things that always give you some concern because you certainly don't want um, folks who feel as if they may be not getting the same treatment as others to rise up against what our efforts are right now for the collective whole body. Everybody's getting treated if you have corona. Matters not if you have insurance. Everybody, at least as far as the president's concerned, our Governor Reynolds is concerned, and what I know to be on the ground, that's happening. So you do worry about that, though. And that's why I think it's right to discuss, it's right to plan, and it's right to think about what happens if. Because if you don't have some protocol in place, for instance, calling the National Guard, then you'll have a situation that's far worse than if you planned. For instance, we now have a national Iowa National Guard liaison who will know everything that's happening in that continuity of government through our emergency management agency we discussed. That person will be able to talk directly with command through the Iowa National Guard. And if, for instance, the Quad Cities becomes an extreme hotspot, we'll get help from the National Guard. But if Ottumwa is the hotspot, hot they'll get help. And they can reposition and repurpose for those needs. Right now, those needs are contemplated to be the possibility of surge in the medical area. And the homeless who might become infected, because we're housing homeless now in five different hotels around the area because the shelters are being closed. Right. So you have to have a particular place for those who are already contaminated, but not needing <clears throat> hospitalization. 
and those that are not contaminated to keep them apart. So we may need some help in those types of makeshift hospitals or triage centers. That is the thought well before the worry about an uprising or something where we might need them as a military backup. But we are considering, we are thinking, and we are planning. Well, and in, in relation to being a river town, I want to go back to that because there's obvious, obviously an awful lot of cities that are along the Mississippi River that is currently above flood stage and people are being flooded out of their homes. Again. Uh, are, are, are a lot of those people being moved to those hotels now from those types of locations already, have you noticed, or, or in talks with other mayors? Yes, yeah, specifically in our, in our uh, sister cities down the river, they are having to evacuate folks because of the flood or the impending flood. They may have to do so. We have worked with our national partners, the folks first at NOAA and the National Weather Service, so that we can know what their predictions are. We talk to them biweekly. We've worked with the American Red Cross. We've worked with the Corps of Engineers, who helps in flooding issues. So all of those folks who team up to fight a flood, and we are assured that the same response will be coming despite COVID, and we will continue to search PPE for those folks who would be coming to our towns to help with flood rescue and flood uh, fighting. So the folks who are now being evacuated, those helpers and volunteers, those folks who may be in the National Guard, Corps of Engineers, Red Cross, or local officials are using PPE to stay safe, moving those folks to targeted areas. Again, if there is a a sick a person who has been who's contracted COVID-19 but is not in a hospitalization phase they're going to a separate distinct and different place than those who may not have contracted the disease and don't test positive therefore or have symptoms or contacts with others who do so they're separate that is happening just like you had seen pictures last year of the John boats having to go in and get people out of their homes now yeah. you'll see if it happens people going in the John boats in full PPE with the mask and the face shield, the gloves, and the gowns. Then they'll bring the people into the John boat and they'll put the people in the spot where they're supposed to go. They'll get tested. Uh, they'll do a temperature read, usually by forehead. They'll ask about symptoms and contacts with people who might have already had the disease. They'll go <clears> left, <throat> those who don't go right, and they'll get them in other places. So we've all thought that through and worked that out together. Awesome. And that, one question I have from one of our listeners, and I think you'll remember. Do you remember Dan Chambers? He graduated with me. He was also a wrestler and football yeah, player. Yeah, I well, do. He's an, he's an attorney, uh, quite successful attorney out in Los Angeles. And awesome. Dan's got a question for you. It sounds like two. It sounds like a pointed question from one attorney to another. To be honest with you, it's pretty good. He's trying to put you on the spot. I like it. Uh, he wants to know your takedowns for a dollar. What's that? Takedowns for a dollar. <laughs> the last day and how good his knees I'm are a little bit more than my last weight class in high school of 119 pounds <laughs> there you go yeah we, we we're all up there a little bit but but he wants to know dan chambers wants to know uh what your feelings personal feelings are on reynolds shelter in place performance because a lot of people have been critical of her which i'm not critical i'm not of that side to be critical of governor reynolds for not putting us in complete lockdown like like many other states have, because there's less population here, obviously. Yeah, what's really interesting, and I fielded this question an awful lot, if you go back and you read the proclamation that turns into an order, each time Governor Reynolds makes a change in what she's doing, she's relying directly upon the matrix that her health officials put together at the Iowa Health Department and the experts at the University of Iowa, along with the county, <clears throat> 
um, folks that uh, work in the health departments. So those matrices or matrix have been uh, worked through uh, each step. And if you go back and you take a look at timing and the basis of the number of cases and you compare it to say an Illinois who went to shelter in place early or a New York even more early than that, you can see that the deliberate approach based upon medical evidence in the matrix they all agreed to use is the best approach out there. You can understand that with less population comes less uh, <clears throat> of a, a touching situation where it could be a spread as quickly as it could with less use of mass transit. That is a huge. And what, what we've seen by the governor in the state of Iowa is great leadership in a measured approach to handle this pandemic. And you can look at the most recent two proclamations and see that we're basically at shelter and home without, again, the divisive rhetoric, because the shelter and home on its face are words we can understand. But the way they've been used by the left side governors and the left side mayors who put it into practice early is that they become terms uh, that sound like bad words. That is the exact reason that a coalition of mayors like the MRCTI can be so successful. Remove the rhetoric. Let's talk about what the actual order says. We're doing just what they're doing, with a few exceptions on both sides. Yeah. Jeff, go ahead. Yeah. Um, without taking you too far down the rabbit hole once again, sir, I don't want to put you too much on the spot, but Pat and I, we've talked, and you know, the evidence is out there, if you will, the mountain of evidence that this just didn't come out of the blue without getting into where this necessarily started, Wuhan, or was it a bio you know, warfare tool? As a, as a mayor, you do require, every city, every state requires law and order, right? I mean, a city just okay. was in chaos without law and order and accountability for one's actions. With, again, not getting too deep into it, what are your thoughts on evidence that we're seeing like a Jeff Bezos has sold $6 billion worth of stock before this happened or a Dianne Feinstein sells off certain stocks before this happened and other members of Congress, there's evidence that they, there was some measure of clear foreknowledge because they're selling off stocks. What are your thoughts on that? You know, I don't know really enough about it to have an opinion. If, if you kind of take a look at it, you feel a little uneasy when you hear that, then it drives to that, that platform of what are the facts? Who can we trust? Where's the source? Because if an investor in Bettendorf who had no foreknowledge of the virus coming to the United States decides, hey, you know, this looks like it could be bad and makes those same decisions, we say good guess or good calculated risk or wow, I wish I would have thought of that. Now, there's more information, I would assume, that Congress is getting. I get more information because of all those phone calls I talked to you about, because of my relationships than my city council. I certainly brief them, but if I have some information and then I go sell stocks and then I brief them, that's a problem. I feel uneasy about that. I don't know because I haven't done the legal research where that falls on the legal continuum. Is it illegal or is it just doesn't feel good? Yeah. Insider trading. So, or, yeah. Yeah. So, so what I want to do is go back to something that you can gauge off when, you know, you have to go off national and state, you know, recommendations and, and orders and, and everything else. But at some point mayors, and governors need to be asking the higher ups on up the chain, 
Um, at what level of percentage of spread are we at um, hospital levels, which I've talked to, Jeff and I have both gotten a ton of messages from nurses and doctors around the country who are saying, you know, they're furloughing nurses. There's nothing going on at this hospital. There's nobody showing up at testing sites. There is literally no cases, hardly at all. One one county in, in California had one death and nobody showing up for testing, yet they have just put them on complete lockdown in that area. So at some point you have to say, as a mayor, okay, hospitals are not overcrowded at all from this. Um, the numbers of, of cases of spread is very low. At what point do you have to make that moral decision and say, we're opening back up for business, man, because uh, the, the, you know we, we've got to make that decision at some point because this otherwise is very clearly for other purposes than a, a you know a viral infection. This is, there's something else going on here. And the only reason I say that, Bob, is because you know we had followed through our, our show and our reporting, you know the global banks that they were spiraling spiraling the drain. The Deutsche Bank even said. Um, you know, they are in so much trouble that the next global uh, financial collapse, there's no more QE options left that would make sense anyway. Um, so th there's a lot of questions here that keep driving me back to this point of you saying, hey, give me some numbers that say percentage of spread, percentage of cases per thousand, all of that, that gives me permission to open my city back up for business. Yeah, I think the, the key is whenever we're making these tough decisions, you go back to what is the empirical data? What are the facts? Who right. can you trust to provide that information? And to your point about hospitals, I can speak locally. Genesis has their surge plan. They have tested their surge plan. They have a triage outside of the hospital. They have tested it. They had it manned for two days. It's no longer manned. We right. don't have the surge. Trinity has their surge plan. They have um, dry run or test run. They're outdoor and they're triage. They're ready. There is no surge. The University right. of Iowa hospitals, where this started, probably because of the contacts that global students have, um, are fine. I talked to them on the phone yesterday morning. They have room. They are not under a surge. They are very comfortable. Um, it is terrible, some of the cases that they've had to, um, to, sure. to, to work, but the numbers are, are not what they expected. So I think that some of those early actions to flatten the curve, if you will, are working. And I think that this staying six feet apart and shelter in place that they call it in Illinois, I think that's working. And I think that we all got in it early, thanks to President, excuse me, Trump and the, the governors who pushed this out. So the question then is, when can you relax these conditions and move forward? Some of the data starts to predict that we're going to be able to make some choices in the next couple of weeks about that because surges are expected in New Orleans, like now, and Baton Rouge this week, and some of the places that have been hardest hit. So if indeed those surges hit, and maybe they're not the surge they're prepared for or expected, but much less, and they last a shorter period of time, and they see less death, we might have been able, with all of the conditions that we placed upon the folks who live in this great nation, stem the tide better. Obviously, when you're looking at pandemics and medical things, just like if it were warfare, you look at worst case scenario and you plan for worst case scenario. If indeed you nip it in the bud quicker, guess what? 
you don't get the worst case scenario and you get back to normal quicker. And that's what people like the president of the United States are hoping for and the football coach at Oklahoma State University. If we can get back to work by May 1, we can salvage that cure being worse than the disease. And I certainly hope that we aren't going to go through this every time there's a potential pandemic because you can't run a like this. You, you just can't. It's my sincere hope that as we come out of this, we can post-mortem the pandemic to determine in comparison with what we did in other pandemics, what works, what doesn't, when do we sound an alarm, when do we not sound an alarm, why did we do this different than the bird flu and SARS? Why did we do this different? Every couple of years, there's something. Every election year, you've seen those posts on social media. There's something, something doom and gloom, something hard that we must face as a great nation. It's interesting to me, but now's not the time. After we get this done, to postmortem what happened and to try to figure out, is this a better method? Is that a better method? Because sometimes the creation of panic and fear is worse than the whatever it is we're facing, in this case, right. COVID-19. I mean, clearly, we didn't have any toilet paper for how many weeks? Right. What were people and what we, They were afraid. Oh, sure, sure. And what we don't want, what we don't want is, you know, with acts like the NDAA and Patriot Act and other, other things that have been implemented over the years from national you know, emergencies, 9-11 and, and other, other things that have happened throughout history, increasingly freedoms are taken away from citizens and a false sense of security is given back. And many of the people in society assume that they are safer because of these things have been put in place. But in reality, you know, what you as an attorney and somebody who knows the Constitution, we understand what's going on with a lot of the, a lot of the freedoms that are being violated right now. Uh, you know, there's, there's National Guard out looking for people from who have ventured into uh, uh, Connecticut um, and running them back out, you know, just being stopped at the border, that sort of stuff. Fourth Amendment right being violated, First Amendment on many social platforms Jeff and I have to deal with. Um, so, you know, what are your concerns after this is all done? Not only just taking a postmortem on what we could have done differently, but also being able to reinstate those, those civil liberties, the, the constitutional rights that Americans are supposed to enjoy. You know, you don't have to look much further than my 11 o'clock telephone call this morning with the faith-based community. They are following our lead and they are not congregating. They have a right to practice whatever religion they choose in this country. They have a right to freedom of speech. They have a right to congregate. And those rights, they're choosing to encourage their flocks, if you will, not to participate in at this time because of the greater concern over the coronavirus. You talked about the First and Fourth Amendments that directly relate to what I do as an attorney. I hope that as we come out of this, the declarations when they end, the presidential declaration of emergency, each governor, we at the county and municipal level, when those end, we ought to be able to get back to business as usual, and we ought to, as a country, even more value those rights because we chose to give them up for a period of time, be it two weeks, a month, or six, uh, excuse me, two weeks, a month, or six weeks. I don't want six months. <laughs> but I really believe that that will rest really heavy on the minds and hearts of Americans. And I really hope that they continue 
to believe in those rights that were fought for by our forefathers, and we get back to exercising them, but more importantly, remembering our personal responsibility. The reason that rights can get eroded is because of those who don't take responsibility for their actions, and then we at a policy uh, making position have to make decisions that affect everybody because of the few. This nation has to get back to a nation of acceptance of personal responsibility. And if we do, your rights, my rights, your rights, all will be protected. And without getting too deep into the, I mean, I think that Pat raises a good point that we've brought up. You know, here we are without getting into the nature of 9-11, whatever of that. You know, we're still every president since then has re, uh, renewed the National Defense Authorization Act because of those emergency powers from 9-11. And here we are 20 years later, and that's still on the books, the possible indef- indefinite detention of Americans, propaganda being le- legally able to use on American citizens. So I wonder as well, Pat and Mr. Mayor, what are your thoughts? You know, like I said, 20 years later, we still have have these mechanisms in place which have stripped a lot of our rights they can wiretap us etc i'm worried 20 years down the line will we get to that point like you said where we can retract and bring it back to more constitutional based human rights etc but i'm I'm just worried man you know like i said 20 years on and we're still dealing with ndaa what how long is it going to be till you know what's it going to be like 20 years from this because this is game changing right this is unprecedented we've never seen this so it's like how much are we going to lose from this and not get Interesting back. Interesting question. And without speaking to thoughts about the act or, or the specifics you raise, that's the hard thing about being a policymaker. Um, it's the balance uh, between keeping people safe and doing what you think is right for masses, supporting and upholding the Constitution, and finding a way to get both things done. Certain things that we have given up as a result of 9-11 that directly deal with safety We've just become, as a society, accepting. That's okay, because we may say, if it takes me 20 minutes longer to board an aircraft, but I am 100% more likely not to be blown out of the sky, I'll stand in line. But some of the other things that you have suggested may not be things that I, as a you know an American citizen, uh, believe ought to happen, especially as an attorney who understands all, all of the... Uh, um, the methods by which government can collect information. We don't want our cops to be able to listen to our cell phone calls and bug our houses or offices. Of course not. There are stalwarts in in the United States of America that protect against that. So, you know, without getting too, like as you say, into the weeds, I think that's the hard thing for policymakers is to balance that. There are days that I wake up and we have hard choices. I'm also thankful that those choices are made at a much higher level because those are really difficult choices. For sure. Yeah. When I've complained right. to like my best friend about, yeah, this, you know, they're doing this and doing this. He's like, bro, you've never had to run a country or, you know, be a leader <laughs> on that level. It's like you said, to create that balance of, like you said, striking that balance between respecting the Constitution and rights and then possible threats and keeping people safe and respecting civil liberties, et cetera. It's got to be tough, man. Now, your hands, again, thank you for coming on. And I, I mean, just listening to you and all of your calls and I mean, you, you got your hands full, man. You got your hands full and, and thank you for what you're doing. And uh, thanks for coming on, Pat. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you up there. No, no, that's great. Great. And, uh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Mayor Bob. It's, uh, we really appreciate you even taking the time to come on here because this, this has, we've gotten already a ton of positive feedback here from, from people that can type in. And, and this is really good stuff for people that live in communities 
to, to kind of get a grasp for what's going on, what you have to do, the responsibilities of, of city officials. You know, it's it's there's a lot. So we, we appreciate yeah. your dedication and staying awake and, and, and coming on with us. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Pat, for the invitation. Jeffrey, thank you, sir. I really appreciate getting to know you a little bit today. Absolutely. If I can ever do anything else for either one of you, please let me know. We are working real hard as a community and policymakers here in the Quad Cities and the mayors up and down the Mississippi River to do what's right for our citizens to do the very best we can. The only way we can get there is to listen to what you're seeing. So my ears are always open. You cannot run any kind of a ship like we're trying to run, uh, pandemic or not without listening to you. So thank you. Thank you. And we as we told, and we've told all of our guests, sorry, Pat, but as, as hopefully this is done here in a few weeks, but as if this does stretch out, you know, they're canceling the Olympics and talking about June, July, we would love to get you back to get a debrief on what is going on in the quad cities, how your conversations with other governors and mayors have developed. Hopefully this will be done sooner than later though. Sorry. And a post-mortem, a post-mortem on it. All. Yeah, for sure. Excellent. I'd love to guys. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Thank All you, right, sir. thanks, Mayor. We appreciate your time, buddy. We are out. All right. All right. That thanks. was Mayor Bob Gallagher from uh, the city of Baton Rouge. Patrick, love you, bro. And uh, thank you for your time again, sir. Peace and so much love, you guys. Stay tuned. There will always be more. Stay safe.